Hello and welcome once again. Thanks for joining us for our church at home service. If you are watching us or listening to us for the first time, won't you just click the welcome link and fill in your details? We would like to get to know you more. We can't wait to hear from you. Today is Mandela Day, and it is on this day that we are encouraged to serve the community and to be charitable for just 67 minutes of our time. But this day comes at a time where the country is in desperate need of prayers with the ongoing looting that's been happening, as well as the rise in COVID infections as people lose jobs and lose lives. Everything just seems to be going down the drain. I'd just like us to just take some time and just pray for the country before we get into the service. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the, our beautiful country and for all the wonderful people in it. Today we come before you and stand in your promise of restoration, just as you promised Israel. Lord, we trust in your promise for South Africa. We give you the glory. We pray against violence and disruption. We pray against crime and corruption. We pray for your heavenly intervention, Lord. Lord, we pray for wisdom for our government and our leaders. We pray against the enemy who wishes to divide us and destroy us. We pray against conflict. Thank you that we can come together as your children and stand in your love. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Family, won't you just continue to pray after the service during your 67 minutes? Continue to pray for our country. I'll now hand over to Pastor Kulu who will bless us with an offering message. And then it is over to Pastor Monli. Be blessed and enjoy. Good morning, church family. We hope that you and your families are still keeping well and that you are safe during this period. Um, for our offering message this morning, I'll be reading from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 from verses 6 to 7, and it reads as follows. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, in your gifted speakers, in your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. So this is Paul talking to the Corinthians about the churches in Macedonia. And he says, you know, that since you excel in, in other many ways, you know, since you excel in faith, in speech and in knowledge the list goes on and it continues to say i want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving and the same thing applies even in our lives you know i can i can say that since you excel in your bible reading since you excel in your prayer life the word of god encourages us to also excel in this gracious act of giving so God desires for us, He desires for you and I to excel in this act of giving, you know, to not just partake in it like any other thing, but to excel in it. Um, the Word of God is very specific to say we need to excel in it to be exceptionally good at it. And as we give this morning, I would like to encourage us with three points. And firstly, giving is about trust when we give we are indicating that we trust God 
we are indicating that we trust him as a provider, that we trust that he will provide for us the same way that we find ourselves trusting, you know, God for healing in our lives, trusting him for even other things in our lives. The question is, can we trust that he will provide for us as we give, as we give sacrificially? And the second point, giving does more for us, which is why we actually need to excel in this act of giving. The word of God says it is more blessed to give than to receive because as we give, this act of giving makes us generous. It makes us compassionate. It makes us to be more like God because we saw him give first. And lastly, giving honors God. You know, as we give, first and foremost, we obey God. We, we obey and honor God and his word. You know, for, the, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We first, you know, see God give him, which is why we need to follow in those footsteps and excel in this gracious act of giving. So as we give today, may we be reminded of why we are doing it and whom we are doing it for. The banking details are going to appear on the screen below. And may you be blessed as you give this morning. Thank you. Welcome. And thank you so much for joining us once again. And, you know, right now our hearts are very broken and sad because of some of the things that are happening in our country. But as believers, I'd like to encourage us. One of the most vital things that we can do in times such as this is to intercede, is to stand in the gap and to pray. We need to pray and continue to pray as we have been doing for God's peace to reign upon South Africa, to rest upon our land and in our hearts. We also need to pray for sustainable solutions to be found for the underlying problems that are, that are facing people or that we are facing right now that have caused these things to, to begin to happen. And we also need to pray as well for, for law and order, you know, for law to take its own place and for justice to be done in all of the things that have happened. But ultimately, I'd like to encourage us that one of the most important things that we need to pray for is we need to pray for people to get saved. We need to pray for people to come into the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because the scriptures assure us that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. They are a new person and God assures us that he will be the one who, take, who takes away our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And what this country needs, what we all need as human beings because of our fallen nature, is that transformation is for God to remove from us our fallen and our broken hearts, our hearts that are full of evil, our hearts that are full of sin, our hearts that are full of bitterness and anger, and for God to replace them with a heart that is full of love, full of compassion, and a heart that is able to forgive. And we also know, you know, as we also discussed last week, that effecting positive change, you know, will, uh, requires more than just prayer most of the time. That at some point, we also have to couple, or we need to accompany our prayer with action, with taking initiative, with, you know, raising our hands and saying, we are going to get involved, we are going to do whatever needs to be done. And it's so encouraging to see, if you've been on social media, it's so encouraging to see the people that are coming together, raising their 
their hands, locking their arms and saying, we are going to rebuild. We are going to clean up. We are going to uh, make sure, you know, that we rebuild South Africa. We rebuild our communities. We rebuild the community. And so for us who are a little bit far from those uh, epicenters, of, of, from those places that have been hardest hit, one of the things that we can do is to support those that are at the forefront, support organizations that are at the forefront in the work of rebuilding, of cleaning up and relief. We can do that by, you know, uh, uh, by supporting them financially if you are able to or supporting them in whatever way that you can. But let us all get involved. Let us all do whatever it is that we, ca that we can do to rebuild South Africa. Let me just take a moment to pray right now. Heaven Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Father, we pray for this country. We pray, Lord God, to you, Lord God, because we know that you are the one who holds the whole world in the palm of his hands, that you are the one, Lord God, who knows everything that is happening here on earth, but ultimately you are the one that is in control and in charge. Father, we pray that you help us to be able to find solutions, long-term solutions, not quick fixes of the problems that are facing the people of South Africa. We pray, Father God, that you help us, Lord God, fill our hearts with peace, fill our hearts with love. Help us to be able to forgive. Help us to be able to live in peace with one another. But we pray ultimately, Lord God, that more people may be able to hear the message of the cross, may be able to understand and give their lives to you, Lord God, because that is the most long-term, the most sustainable solution to all of the problems that are brought by sin and, and by the fallenness of human nature, is that we need to be born again. We need to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray for all this in Jesus' mighty name, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. So, welcome. And today we are looking at part three of the series, Rise and Rebuild. And it's very interesting how that title seems to be so relevant right now because of what is happening. Rise and Rebuild, you know, and it is based on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Israelites that were brought back from captivity to begin to rebuild their lives, to begin to rebuild the temple and, and worship to God back in Jerusalem. So last week we looked at uh, effecting positive change, looked at Ezra chapter 3. The Israelites arose, you know, and began to build the altar of sacrifice and to restore sacrif the sacrificial system and worship of God that was relevant to them in those days. And so there's three things that we looked at there that uh, effecting positive change requires. And the first one is that it requires unity. It requires us to work together. We, we learned from the scriptures that they rose together as one man. They were united and they began to work. Second thing that change requires is that it requires initiative. At some point, we can be as angry as we want to. We can even pray as long as we want to. But at some point, someone is going to have to rise up, take initiative, and say, I am going to do something about this. I am going to get involved, you know. And so that's the second thing that change requires. Lastly, it is that change requires courage. Change requires courage sometimes, and most of the time, we are called to get involved, to do something, but, you know, the reality is that we are afraid, afraid of many things, afraid of, of, of uh, failing, maybe, afraid of, uh, you know, being, becoming a, a laughing stock if we should fail. Whatever it is, most of the time, we're actually afraid, and we looked at the fact that courage is not the absence of fear, but courage is when our resolve to do something is great 
greater than our fear of doing it. We need to do things, and most of the time we need to do them afraid. We need to do them scared because courage is when our resolve to get involved, our resolve to do something is greater than our fear of doing it. And so today we look at the rebuilding of the temple. Finally, this is the reason they had been sent back into Israel for. They had been sent back to rebuild the temple. And now they are beginning to do the work. And the rebuilding of the temple, you will see, it has three stages. First stage is the one that we're going to look at today. It is the laying of the foundation of the temple and the celebration that took place at the end of that. Second stage is a stage that we also face so many times in our lives when you begin to do something important. Second stage is dealing with opposition and discouragement. Opposition and discouragement. In fact, it got so bad that they actually abandoned the work. For some time, they actually left rebuilding the, the temple. But the third stage is that, you know, God worked supernaturally, and they came back, they returned to the rebuilding, and they actually completed the work. So we're going to focus on the first one today, as I have mentioned, laying off the foundation. And the text is in Ezra chapter 3, verse 8 to 13. Let me read it for us. It says, Now in the second year, after they are coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josedek made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henedad and, and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came, to, came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the, the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when the people praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites, the heads of, fathers of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the shout was heard from far away. And this is a very interesting and fascinating portion of Scripture. And we're just going to uh, take a moment to look at it uh, briefly. In terms of the time frame, this takes place in the second year after they had returned from captivity, during the second month. So you remember from last week, they arose during the seventh month of their first year to build the altar. So this is a couple of months after that. They arose second year, second month to begin to rebuild the, 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 the temple of God in Jerusalem. And it's a very fascinating and a little bit confusing, especially towards the end. 
But we're just going to look at the beginning uh, in a moment. And so the first thing that, that happens is that they arose, they, 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 you know, they got together and they arose to rebuild the temple. And the first interesting thing that I notice here is that is the appointment of young leaders to be able to oversee the work. So we can learn from verse 8 and verse 9 that the Levites from 20 years old and upward were appointed to the work, which is really interesting because when we, when we think about the Bible, for an example, we think about the Bible as being outdated, as being a book that holds us back, you know, as being an archaic book. But it's very interesting how, you know, uh, how uh, even back then they, they, they gave responsibility to young people, something that is taking place right now, especially in corporate uh, in the workplace, uh, people are saying, give young leaders, give young people responsibility, give them uh, something to do, let them become leaders in the workplace, they can do it. And we think that's a novel idea, that is something new, but it is not. All the way in the Old Testament, from 20 years old, people were made overseers of a very important national project that took place in Jerusalem. Also very interesting, if you, if you look at the meaning of the name Zerubbabel, you will understand that the name means planted in Babylon. And that's another very interesting detail that we can get from, from this uh, account. And what uh, basically was happening here is that the, 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 most of the generation that got involved, that was at the forefront, were a generation that was actually born in captivity. They were born in Babylon. They were born uh, in captivity. And these are the people that had never seen Israel. They had never seen the land prior to this moment. This is the first time that they are seeing Jerusalem, you know, in their lifetimes because they were not alive prior to the captivity. And yet God chooses these young people, chooses or these younger people. I don't think all of them were that young, but he chooses these younger, this younger generation to be at the forefront of the work that he wants to get done in Jerusalem. And so I'm not going to look at uh, or speculate as to why God did things this way. But what, I, what we are going to do is to try and learn what we can from uh, from, from this account. This is what happened. These are the leaders that got, uh, that got appointed to the work. And so what we are going to do is to just learn what we can. And this is one of the most important things that I can see is that I think so many of us as believers actually underestimate what God can do through a young person. Sometimes we look down at young people, uh, you know, because we think their image or what can God do through them. You know, we are the ones that God is going to use. God can use us. Make no mistake about that. But I think we underestimate what God can achieve through young people. But the fact of the matter is that age is not a determining factor for whether God uses a person or not. I think willingness and humility are determining factors of whether God can use a person or not. And so God can use anyone, but age, I don't think, is a determining factor. In fact, we can look at the scriptures of so many young people that were used by God to do mighty things in terms of what God wanted to achieve. Let's, let's look at David for a moment. David was first anointed to be the next king in Israel at the age of 15. 15 years old, God had already appointed, uh, anointed him. God had chosen 
chosen him to be the next king of the nation, even though he was crowned to be the actual king at the age of 30. But from 15, God had already started working in his life. Joseph, another young man that God spoke to in dreams, you know, and visions uh, during the night from the age of 17 years old, God already started speaking to him about his destiny, about how God is going to use him mightily to, to actually save millions and millions of lives from the famine from 17 years old. And we are told at the age of 30 years old, uh, he was already second in command in the entire nation of Egypt. He was second all, only to Pharaoh. God had elevated him and exalted him for the sake of what God wanted to do through him at the age of 30. Think about Esther, who was the, the next queen that replaced Vashti and became the queen there in Persia. And, and, and you know, scholars also debate here in terms of her age, but they think she could have actually been as, as young as 30 years old, 13 years old, already being a queen and used by God mightily to also save multiple, uh, close to probably millions of lives of people that were, that were saved because of how God used her and her influence from a very, very young age. Think about Mary, the one who, who, brought, uh, who gave birth to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's another young person that God used mightily for a very important and significant assignment to, to give birth to and to, to raise our, our Lord and Savior when he was incarnate here on earth. So back in those days, you know, uh, young people were allowed to get married from the age of 12, 12 or 13. They were allowed to get into marriage. So they, scholars also estimate that she could have been 12, 13, 14, betrothed to be married to Joseph when all of these things happened. So she was a very, very young person. Think about Jeremiah, the prophet to the nations, the weeping prophet, as he has been called. Jeremiah was called by God to become a prophet offered to the nations from a very young age. And we can even... Uh Understand that from his own excuse when God chooses him, when God calls him, what does he say? He says, I cannot speak for I am only a youth. I'm still a young person. And God chooses him, calls him, and uses him mightily. Lastly, Timothy, the, the companion of the great Paul, you know, um, in, in his missionary journeys, planting churches all over the place, bringing and spreading the message of the gospel. So he worked close with Paul, and at some point he went into pastoral ministry. Paul made him overseer of a, a physical or a particular uh, church congregation, or a, a group of churches. And, and at later, Paul has to write a letter to encourage him. And he says, don't let anyone look down upon you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in how you conduct yourself. So Paul, I mean, for, so Timothy also would have been a younger person or a younger man who went into the ministry and was used mightily by God. And so the fact of the matter is that God can use anyone that he chooses. So age does not disqualify anyone from being used by God. And if God has called you, you know, he will equip you and strengthen you to be able to do whatever God has called you. It does not matter how young you are, and it also does not matter how old you are. God can use you, and if he has called you, don't look down upon yourself. Don't discount yourself 
but be courageous and take initiative. Take the, ne- the, the first step on that journey, and God will help you to do what he has called you to do. Second thing that happens in this portion is that they, they, uh, they do the work. You know, they oversee the work gets done. The foundation is laid. And basically what happens is that straight after the foundation a worship service takes place. The priests and the Levites, they come forward and they lead the people in praises, in songs of praise and worship to God who had helped them to be able to come back to see the land with their own eyes while they are alive, who had seen them, who had helped them to be able to begin rebuilding the temple. The people were excited. It was a good day. It was a joyous day in Israel that day. And people worshiped God and they sang songs of praise and worship to God. And at the same time, we are given that detail that really doesn't really make a lot of sense in, in, you know, at, at face value that some people, the older generation, the older people who had seen the first temple, a temple that King Solomon had built, they began to cry aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. And I don't think that these were tears of joy. These were tears of sorrow as they began to think about, to reminisce about the temple that was in the beginning when they looked at this one, when they looked at the foundation of this temple. So I asked myself, why? Why? Why are they crying? This is a good day. This is a joyous day. This is a day that people are worshiping God, are praising God for his faithfulness and for his steadfast love. But the, younger gen- the older generation is crying. So I asked myself, and I, I think this is, these are some of the reasons. And you, basically the scripture tells us, you know, just the, 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 the surface of, of what could be the reasons, of what were the reasons that they began to weep. Because the Bible says that these are the people who had seen the older temple, the temple that was, was there before the captivity, the temple that was there before the destruction. They had seen it. And now when they, see, when they saw this temple being laid, uh, they began to cry. And so basically, I think what happened is that the problem uh, that they were dealing with was that they compared this temple to the temple that was. They compared this work to the work that was in the beginning. And so the problem is that they looked at the outward appearance of this temple. And then when they compared it to that, so the previous one, we know it was magnificent. It was like nothing, you know, anyone had ever seen before, overlaid with gold. And we are given so many details. It was lavish and extravagant. And this one paled in comparison to that. And the problem is that they compared this one to that one. And they compared it based on the outward appearance. And if we know anything about about comparing things and, and spiritual things is that God does not look at the outward appearance and the glory of the temple. This is what I began to understand, that the glory of the temple is not determined by how it looks on the outside. Rather, it is determined by who dwells in it on the inside. That is the thing that determines the glory or the value of the temple, not what it looks like on the outside. And right now, people could be looking at the outward appearance 
of what you are doing. And they are seeing just how unimpressive it looks. People may be looking at the outward of the private practice that you are building right now and how small it looks. They may be looking at the outward appearance of your small businesses and, and seeing how despised it looks right now. And I am here to remind you that it is not the outside that matters, but whether God is in it or not, that is the only thing that matters. It is whether God is the one who is in it or not, not what it looks like on the outside. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of, of that account of Samuel, Samuel the prophet of God, who had been raised, you know, in the very house of God from the, an early age, who had spoken and walked with God for a number of years. But when it came to the moment when he was about to anoint David as the next king of Israel, he also, you know, got uh, confused a little bit uh, when, when, he co when he began to compare the candidates based on how they look on the outside. He, he made a complete mistake. He completely missed what God was doing because we are told this in First Samuel chapter 16, verse 6 to 7. It says, when they came, these are the candidates, when they came, Samuel looked on Eliab, the first one, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is, be is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as men sees. How many of you are glad that the Lord sees not as men sees? Because if, if the Lord saw as, as other people see, he would have discounted you. He would have uh, overlooked you. He would not have used you. He would not have chosen you because of all the things that, that uh, physically disqualify you. But we are told here that the Lord sees not as men sees. Men looked on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so, so many of us should be glad right now that the Lord is not like human beings, that the Lord does not see as men sees. He does not just look at the outward appearance. He does not just look at how the thing looks at the moment. And so it's fine if you're working from your garage right now. It's fine if you have to sell your stuff from out of the boot of your car for a time. It is fine if this temple looks small right now, as long as God is in it. That is the only thing that matters as long as it is God who sanctioned it, as long as it is God who initiated it and who is all over it. So the glory of what you are building is not determined by what it looks on the outside. It is determined by whether God is in it or not. And it's very interesting because I believe the older generation wept because they couldn't, they couldn't see what the Spirit of God was doing. This is the other thing. This is the, 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 the danger of being too focused on the past is that we, risk, we run the risk of missing what God is doing right now. So these are the people that had seen the previous temple. They still had the images in their minds. You know, they had a longing for that kind of temple. They thought, surely this temple... We, if when we are building, rebuilding this temple, it must look like the one that was before. And they began to miss what the Spirit of God was doing in this moment. How do I know that? It's because the Scriptures tell us this is God's response to the same temple. So they are responding, you know, to the temple that was built. This is now God's response to the same temple in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3 and 9. This is what it says. So God asked the people. This is a short 
short while afterwards. And God asks the nation of Israel, he says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who is among you who saw the previous version of this temple? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your own eyes? To which I believe the people agreed. This temple looks like nothing in our own eyes compared to the previous temple. Verse 9, this is what God says. God says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So listen, God was not interested in making this temple to be like the one that King Solomon had built. I'm so glad that God is not the God of the past. God is the God of now. God is the God of new things. He says, I am doing a new thing. I'm not interested in making this thing to be like it was. I'm not interested in, in replacing the thing that you lost to be exactly like it was. I'm not interested in replacing what was destroyed in your life to be like it was. I am doing a new thing and the glory of the latter house. Even though on the outside it looks less. It looks less significant, less impressive. It looks less than what it was. But the glory of it is going to be greater than the one that was before because I, the Lord, am able to do it. It's not what it, what it looks like on the outside, but whether God is in it or not. And God was doing something new. And I think the older generation missed it because they were focused on the past. They were thinking, surely if the Lord is going to build it, he's going to make it to look like it was on the past. And to be honest and to be fair, age is not the problem here. There are young people that are, that are, that are focused, that are dwelling on the past. There are old people, you know, that are focusing on the now. It's not the age that is the most important thing. But what are we focusing on? Are we, fo are we dwelling on the past? Are we wanting God to do things the way that he used to do them? Are we thinking that's the only way if God is going to build a temple that's the only way or are we looking at what God wants to do right now and I am telling you God wants to do a new thing and sometimes you're going to have to let go of the past to be able to grab hold of what God is doing right now because they missed it and the reality of the matter is that they missed it because they were dwelling and reminiscing about the past. Last thing that we see here is the importance of being able to distinguish between the voices. It says that the, the, the people who were shouting joyfully, they shouted joyfully. And the people that were weeping were also weeping loudly. So that it was difficult for one to distinguish the shouting of joy and the shouting of the people that were weeping. And so it, it got me thinking how important it is for you and I as a child of God to be able to distinguish between the voices. Sometimes, you know, the voices are all rising up at the same time. The voices are all calling for our attention at the same time. And it is difficult from a distance to be able to distinguish from the voices. But it is very important for us to get close so that we can distinguish between the voices. Because there's a voice that does not come from what God is doing. And there's a voice that comes that is linked to what God is doing. And we can think about so many other voices right now that are speaking into our lives right now in the current situation that you find yourself in. And you can think about there's so many voices right now 
that are speaking in our, into our lives. They are all rising up at the same time. They are all speaking at the same time. There's a voice of fear. There's a voice of anger. There's a voice of faith, faithlessness. And there's a voice of faith. There's a voice of the Spirit. There's a voice of despair and desperation. There's a voice that wants you to give up. All of these voices, if from a distance, it may be difficult to be able to distinguish. But you and I, as a child of God, need to be able to distinguish which voice to listen to, which voice comes from God, which voice does not come from God, which voice should we listen to, and which voice should we not listen to, because because if we listen to the wrong voice, we will also be discouraged. If we listen to the wrong voice, we will also feel like giving up. If we listen to the wrong voice, we will retaliate at this moment. But if we listen to the right voice, we will be steady, we will become, we will place our faith and our confidence in God, who is the one who is going to come through for us, regardless of what happens in and around us, regardless of the situations that we find ourselves in. And so each and every one of us needs to constantly decide which voice to listen to, which voice are we going to give airtime into our lives, which voice are we going to give a space to speak into our lives. Because if we listen to the wrong voice, we will get discouraged, disillusioned, and we will give up. But if we listen to the right voice, we will be encouraged to do what God has called us to do. And right now, I'd like to ask you, as everything is happening, as everything is still up in the air, what voice are you listening to right now? Which voice are you giving that uninterrupted airtime into your life? You'll be able to see the voice by the fruit that it bears in your life. Are you more at peace or are you more restless? Are you able to sleep at night? You know, or are you, you are not able to sleep at night because of the voices that you allow to speak into your life. God wants us to listen to his voice. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The, the, my sheep know my voice. They follow me because they know my voice. Right now, especially in times of uncertainty, especially in times that we find ourselves right now in, we need to be able to know the, the voice of the shepherd so that we can distinguish it from the other voices in a crowd. And I would like to remind you this morning that God is still seated upon his throne, even during this moment, that God is the one who's holding South Africa in the palm of his hands, while he may certainly allow these difficult things and situations to happen in our lives, we must never make the mistake of thinking that everything is out of control, because it is not. God is in control. He sees the bigger picture. He sees things that we are not able to see. He can see around the corner that we have not yet turned. He sees ahead of us. And so sometimes he will allow things that make no sense to us. He will allow things that are difficult for us to deal with. But because he sees the bigger picture, we need to trust him. We need to listen to his voice. We need to continue to keep our eyes fixed on him. And ultimately, regardless of how things are worse or how bad things can get, God is still able to use even uh, that, that difficult and that bad situation to be able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your life, in my life, and in our country. 
doesn't matter what happens. God is able to use even the worst of situations. Doesn't mean that he's the one who causes the worst situations. But we are saying he's able to turn those situations around for our good. He's able to create a testimony out of a difficult time of, of testing and trials and tribulations. How do we know this? Because we know that God was able to accomplish his plans for the world through Jesus Christ precisely in the moment that the devil thought he had painted God to the corner. Precisely in that moment when Jesus was on the cross, when Jesus, you know, died and the enemy has been the one who instigated and orchestrated all of those events that led to the death of our Lord and Savior on the cross. The enemy thought in his mind that when he kills Jesus, that all the plans that God had that hung upon Jesus, that all of those plans for humanity will be utterly destroyed. But what he didn't know is that Jesus is the one and, and perfect sacrifice that could take away our sins and the thing that was necessary was for him to be put to death and so when the enemy put Jesus to, the, to, to death on the cross when, when, he, when he thought he had won that was the very thing that was necessary for salvation to become possible when he thought he had put God into a checkmate God said I am the one who has put you into a checkmate. God is able to turn even the worst situation around to result in our good, to result in, 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 in a testimony, to result in something good coming from even the worst of situations. And so right now, even in this very difficult and dark time in our country, we can rise, we can rebuild. God can turn the situation around. We need to believe in the fact that God is in control, that God is able to use even the worst of situations to result in ultimate, in ultimate good for you and for me and for our country. And right now you may also be listening and you do not know this God that I'm talking about. You do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I believe this is a moment where you can, when you can make that right, where that can become a reality in your life, where you can enter into a relationship with God. I've already mentioned that the Bible says that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit makes us into a new person, into a new creation, created to be like God, to cre created, you know, to be like more like Jesus. He gives us a heart that helps us to be able to be at peace, to be able to live in peace with others, to be able to forgive even the unforgivable because in, in, on the cross, Jesus was also able to forgive the unforgivable in us. And the fact of the matter is that God wants to be put right with his people. That is the reason that Jesus hung upon that cross. That is the reason that he gave his life for all of humanity. It's because he wants to be put right in relationship, back in relationship with you. He wants to be put back in relationship with all of humanity. And the way into that is through the sacrifice, the shedding of the innocent blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That John says he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had to be crucified. He had to die the perfect for the sake of the imperfect, the just for the unjust. He had to be put to death so that you and I may live, so that you and I may not be put to death for our own sins and wrongdoing. The reality is that the way of salvation has been made possible. 
And you do not have to die for your own sins. You do not have to pay to be able to inherit this salvation. You only need to accept what God has already done for you on your behalf on the cross. You need to accept what Jesus did for you when he gave his life on your behalf on the cross. And you need to place your faith in him. You need to accept him into your life as the Lord and the Savior of your life. Let us just pray and conclude. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Lord God, for the fact that even in difficult times, we can still have peace in our hearts because we know, Father God, that you are the one who is in control. We also know, Lord God, how the story ends. You have let us know, Lord God, that in the end, you will be victorious. You, Father God, are the one who is going to defeat sin, death, and evil. That you are going to be victorious in the end. So as we go through difficult times of adversity, as we go through difficult times of trials and tribulations, we can know in our hearts that in the end, you are going to make all things right. And so we can rest in that knowledge. We can rest, Father God, in the fact that you are in control. And so I pray, Father, for each and every person who's turning to you right now, who's placing their faith in you, Lord Jesus. I pray, Father, indeed, that you may make them into a new creation, that you may take, Lord God, that heart of stone, Father, and replace it with a heart of flesh. Fill them with your love. Fill them with your joy. Fill them with your peace, Lord God, and help them, Lord, to grow, to become everything that you want them to become. Put people around them that are going to help them to grow and mature. We thank you, Father. We lift your name up. We praise you and worship you even through dark times because we know that you are good and your steadfast love endures forever towards us, your people. In Jesus Christ's mighty name, now and forevermore. Amen and amen. Hi, my name is Mundi Glenn and together with my wife, we pastor People's Church. I'm so glad that you chose to join us online today and I pray that God uses this resource to make you more and more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's important to note that these kinds of resources are never meant to replace the need for you to belong to a local church congregation where you are led and shepherded, a place where you can use your gifts and your resources to make a positive impact on the lives of the people around you. This is only meant to supplement and not substitute them. And lastly, I would like to ask you, if these resources have been of benefit to you, would you kindly consider giving to People's Church? This is so that we can continue to invest in technologies that help us and enable us to increase our reach and spread the message of Jesus Christ even wider and to even more people. For ways to do that, you can go to our website and click on the Giving tab and you'll see ways to be able to give. Now once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Take care and God bless you. Thank you for that encouraging message, Pastor Moni. We are truly blessed to hear the word. If you are new, don't forget to click on the welcome link. We would like to get to know you. As for the rest of everyone else, please enjoy the rest of your Mandela Day and continue to pray for our country. Have a blessed week and enjoy.